I'm Dan Rundy. This is another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy, Freedom Development and Foreign Policy podcast series. I'm joined by Ramina Bandura, who's a senior fellow here at CSIS at the Project on Prosperity and Development. We're going to be discussing an upcoming report that Ramina is launching on the world of work. We don't call it the world of work, but we're going to be talking about the future of work in developing countries. So, Ramina, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure. You're welcome. You're welcome. I always ask folks, where did you grow up and and how did you end up at CSIS? How did you end up where you are? Well, I'm still growing up, Dan. You're still growing up. So half of my life, half of my grown-up years, I spent in the Middle East and, and some of them in Argentina. So you, you grew up in Iran and Abu Dhabi? Iran, Algeria, and the UAE. Do you speak Arabic? I've learned it, but since I didn't practice it, I forgot it. How's your Farsi? Not good. My mom knows Farsi. Your mom knows Farsi. Your mom knows Farsi. And then you, but then you grew up the rest of your life in Argentina, the rest of your childhood in Argentina. Yeah, and then I came here into the United States in 2001 to go to grad school. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then okay, so you after grad school, you ended up. Where did you go? I ended up five years in the United Nations Development Program in New York City uh, as a policy analyst, and then I moved to Washington, D.C. to take a job with DAI, a USAID contractor. And after that, I worked two years at the ILO Washington office and five years at the Economist Intelligence Unit. What is that? What's the Economist Intelligence Unit? It's a, the consulting arm of the Economist Group. Many people know the Economist Magazine. Yeah, I subscribe to it. Okay. Well, they have several businesses. One is the Economist Magazine. The other one is CQ Roll Call. Oh. And the third is the EIU. We do, they do a lot of uh, macroeconomic forecasting and uh, follow political events. And they have this unit that deals with... Consult- uh, consulting business. So huh. a lot of research for... So it's for, like in-house consulting, big, long studies. Yeah, it's kind of similar like to... Like a think tank. Yeah, to a think tank, but a for-profit one. But a for-profit one. Yeah. So, okay, so then you joined us. When did you join us? Just a year ago, so September 2017. So one of the things, when you started with us, you and I agreed that one of the things that we ought to be thinking about is the disruptions that are happening in the development world. You, so a lot of your career has been looking at development from you were at the ILO, mm-hmm. you were at UNDP, yep. you, you focused on this in grad school, you mm-hmm. were at a development consultancy company like DAI. So you've thought about these issues from a number of perspectives. And we both agreed that this issue of sort of the disruptions coming to developing country economies would be something that would be worthy of significant work and significant study. Do you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, the world of work is something that everybody can relate to, even people like like mothers. They have unpaid work. They do a lot of work at home. uh, So you can view that as world of work as well. And people that make a living uh, outside of their houses, you know, so it's a social issue that I think a lot of people, again, um, can relate to, and that's what interests me about it. So what was the, pro- what did you do? What have you spent, you've spent a lot of time, you've done a lot of different things over the last 12 months on this. Tell us a little bit about the project and what, what you led. We first set up a very important high-level task force of individuals from different 
sectors and uh, private companies and leaders of uh, international organizations to help us uh, think about what are the big topics that we would we should focus on. So those have those people have really been helping us um, with the vision of the project. Uh, in parallel, we did four case studies. We traveled to India, Brazil, Nigeria, and Kazakhstan, where we interviewed about 100 organizations and spoke to 250 people. That's Those, a lot. Yeah, that's a lot, but it, it helped us paint the picture of you know what's really happening on the ground. And based on those interviews and desk research, we produced uh, four case studies, which I thought were going to be short and, and sweet, but <laughs> they, they've become uh, a little longer than... Okay, so if people have trouble sleeping at night, they can, they can take these out. No, no, it's on the contrary. They're going to read them and... And, and be on the and edge of their seats. W- they're going to pull an all-nighter, so... Pull an all-nighter in these things. <laughs> but, 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 Ramina, I think... So you had this task force. You went to a number of countries... The, you know, very interesting countries, Kazakhstan, Brazil, Nigeria, India. What, why did you choose those countries? And can you tell us a little bit about some of the things you took away in each of those countries? Because I think yeah, that's interesting. Of course. So we chose these four countries. Um, they are countries in the, they're middle income countries, meaning that they're not too poor or too rich. They're in between 1,000 and 12,000 GDP per capita. And these countries have big labor forces, so Brazil, India, Nigeria. We chose a variety of uh, geographic regions, and we chose countries that are in different paths of development and demographic development. So we wanted a mix, and we wanted um, to get a a very good uh, viewpoint of what's happening there. One of those countries is uh, also considered fragile by the OECD, uh, that's Nigeria. So that gave us a really richness of, of, of the picture of the, of the labor force in, in, in the developing world. So, so talk about, let's talk about Nigeria, for example. Mm-hmm. What were some of the things you went, you must have talked to 30, you spent a week in Nigeria, you must have interviewed at least 30 different stakeholders in Nigeria. What were some of the things you took away from from your your research on Nigeria yeah. and, and sort of the future of its economy because I think and I think it's very interesting. So in Nigeria, Nigeria is going through a what we would call a labor market trifecta of challenges. You have first of all jobless growth. So the the economy is growing but most of the jobs are being created in the informal um, economies. And second of all, people the education system and training systems are not equipping young people to get, you know, right the right type of tools for the workforce. And the third issue is uh, of growing youth bulge. So you have a very high level of of population growth. On average, Nigerian women have five kids. So the the country's still growing and by i think 2030 in 10 years time or 2050 yeah i don't remember the un statistic it's going to be the number 3 country in the world in terms of population oh my word surpass it'll surpass the united states so they have this three challenges and so they need not, to diversify training the right not able to train or educate they have not not creating enough jobs and an exploding population exactly nigeria has been blessed and cursed at the same time with oil so they 
they've been relying on the oil business for most of their revenues, exports, so export revenues. And so the challenge is for them to diversify the economy. I would say that Nigeria needs to focus on infrastructure development, uh, better governance. There is also a, bra- a brand image of the country with you know a lot of corruption and instability. And they have so, to. So re- it doesn't have a great reputation. Is what no, yeah. So the 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 brand Nigeria doesn't have a good reputation, and that's a lot of uh, the stakeholders that we interviewed uh, told us that. And it needs to yeah focus on education reform and as, as to technology. Yes, they they know that uh, there are all these changes in in robotics and AI. But the pace of adoption is going to be probably very slow in Nigeria. Let's re- what are some of the, the growth sectors in Nigeria? Where are the jobs going to come from in Nigeria? Before they discovered oil, Nigeria had a very good agricultural base. And so, um, um, you know, agriculture has been shedding jobs on the long run. But they can move to higher value agriculture and food production, you know, of, of in higher value agriculture components and so that's one uh, so, area so instead of growing cassava they could get into the food processing business and yeah create. and create better you know different products um, you know consumers are changing their tastes and so they're demanding you know more sophisticated products uh, so that's an area that we think can can be um, a potential for growth um, another area for uh, Nigeria is to move to downstream Petroleum, like petrochemicals, um, that's another area. I mean, it's it's very capital intensive, but it can it, it can create jobs. And then a very interesting sector that nobody really has. Um, well, I'm not saying nobody has talked about, but there are two sectors um, that are growing, though maybe informal. The arts and entertainment. So there's a big Nollywood. So this is the Nigerian um, film I- industry. You met exactly. with a movie star. We met with a movie star there. We met with two movie stars there. Another in- industry that is growing is the worship industry. What do you mean by what is the worship industry? Everything related organized to religion. Organized religion. Organized yeah. religion, so as, a religious, as a source of job creation. Religious value chain. Some of these mega churches, churches really like mega churches. In on average, two thousand people. Two thousand people. So they provide healthcare services, education, ser- so schools. They um, there's a big graphic graphic industry. So like printing and printing, posters, posters and papers. And radio, and, yeah. Anyway, so this is I think you know it's not something we think about in Washington, but that's really interesting. The worship industry as a I mean, that, as a source of growth, I mean, and same with en- culture and entertainment is actually, you know, I do think for many countries that's going to be a big part of their that's going to be a big part of their their job creation. Yeah, and then um, how about construction? Yeah, construction is another one. They they import a lot of uh, construction workers from uh, neighboring Togo um, and. Because they don't have the skills, they don't have, they don't know how to set tiles, for example. They don't know how to paint, um, and so they import it, 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 like professional painters or professional yeah, tile setters. Yeah. So, um, and then the other industries that we believe, well, the ICT industry, so the information communication technology, and uh, you know that Legos is the. Uh, hub of startup of of IT startups in Africa, and so those 
those the, that those types of companies are are going to also hire people, young people in the in the future. And then renewables, you know, renewable energy uh, can can also be a source of of employment in Nigeria. What? Um, tell me about. You also were in a number of other countries. Talk about Brazil. So you were in Brazil yeah, looking so at this. Brazil, um, so Brazil and Kazakhstan are aging. So their average age is, is going up, and the proportion of pendants, so that is retirees and children, is growing uh, in terms of the total population. So the, the, the issue with Brazil is that you know they are having an election this month, a presidential election. They've had several years of political and economic turmoil, turmoil um, you know, the big corruption scandals. Yes. So there, when we went there, they were very focused on the short term. Um, you know, let's get our leadership back. Let's get the political um, issues back. And, you know, they've gone through a recession. So uh, the fear is that they have reversed their social gains that they have done in 2000 and then during in the, the last 15 years. And one of the big takeaways is that they're going to have to probably do some kind of social security reform for the pensioners and provide care services for a growing uh, population that you know needs uh, nursing homes or care at home or health care. An a- aging population is an opportunity and is a challenge because it can provide jobs, but it also you need to you know care about these. Populations. So, so one of the things that you took away is that the developing world is not is not just all, you're not just seeing youth bulges wherever you look, that there are a number of developing countries that are experience, beginning to experience global aging. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. and so two of the countries we looked at. Kazakhstan. And Kazakhstan and Brazil are not, are not gonna double in population over the next 15 no, years no, at all. No, I mean, Nigeria is one that is going to, you know, double, uh, India is, it's, it's still of, growing. It's still growing. And it'll be, end up being like, one. it's, gonna it's going to be the, India's going to be the most populous country by 2022, according to the UN. Half of the population is under 25. So so, so talk about India. What do you, you were in India. What, what One of the things, you shocked me when you told me that 90% of the economy of India is informal. Right. Is that true? Yeah. So 90% of the people employed are Selling, um, selling on the streets, or um, doing their self-entrepreneurs, or they work in establishments that you know don't don't participate in the formal them. economy. They exactly. don't pay taxes. They don't pay taxes. But they don't get access to loans. They don't. They're not following labor laws or exactly. safety laws or rules or anything like that. So that's uh, very un- unfortunate because they don't have protections and they are and these are jobs that you know are usually low productivity and low 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 quality uh, jobs but you know people have to make a living somehow and so uh, they do several jobs at the same time uh, surprisingly you know we went to these four countries and nobody is really when we talked about technology and the fourth industrial revolution they were not scared um, they, th- they thought that this is also an opportunity for new sectors to come up and that some of the, the informal workers could benefit. For example, in India, a lot of the Uber drivers have been earning much more money uh, doing an Uber job than whatever they were doing before. So we have to be careful about technology because technology can also be a source of good. It's not going to just 
be automation and jobs will disappear. So there's a more nuanced picture. Amen. So so when we when we started this work, we started with the premise from Mina that were people going to lose the pathways out of poverty that we've had for the last 34 years? And so there's this very long word for it that Danny Roderick, I think, coined the term, which is called premature deindustrialization, which sounds to me like anti-disestablishmentarianism. It's like a super long term word, long word but in essence means what happens if robots uh, get rid of jobs in fact in textile factories, mm -hmm. right? And so premature deindustrialization, or, or or in essence that yeah, that you, you 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 the 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 ladder is kicked out for folks to you know to fully participate in the in the upside of globalization, right? Isn't that that was what we? Yeah. So so you're, what you're saying is after having looked at all this, when you think about technology, it's not necessarily going to be case that everyone's going to have their jobs blown away by robots. Exactly, but um, I mean. It's, it depends on, you know, uh, I think technology will impact all sectors, but it doesn't mean that all sectors will be automated and people will lose their jobs. And and this uh, manufacturing, yes, it's shrinking, but there are other sectors that are coming up that are associated to, to manufacturing in the services sector. So, you know, those those sectors can, can provide more opportunities for, for people to make a living. The, the issue is that we need to ensure that these are quality jobs, that they, you know, they pay well. Um, I mean, in a decent, a decent uh, income. Otherwise, you know, we're moving to what's low a quality. Qual what's a quality job? Because that's a term I've heard a lot. What does that mean? Well, it means different things for different people, right? The ILO has decent work, which is, you know, a job that follows the labor standards, that has labor protection, that meaningful and that you know you the, you can unionize and have collective bargaining and and social protections I think for the World Bank it's a little bit different it, it means a job that is productive and that has um, uh, that that can have uh, positive externalities in, in an economy so it depends I mean for me a quality job is something that is fulfilling that can provide you with some decent living and and of course can employ your your skills and and assets um, what is the issue of what what were some of the surprises what were some of the bigger takeaways you took after having interviewed 250 people visit these countries worked with this broad base of of really thoughtful expert uh, folks who helped us as part of a, a task force that we did on this on the future of work in developing countries what were some of your big takeaways yes. So, in terms of technology, the pace of technology adoption in in countries will be in developing countries will probably be slow, and most governments don't have a strategy for the future of work, and and their education systems lag behind. A second takeaway is that we mentioned it already, but informality and and unemployability of youth are very are two big challenges that developing countries are, are dealing with. And the third is job creation. And by 2030, there's going to be 3.2 billion people under the age of 25. And if you know economies don't create meaningful jobs for their citizens and their educations uh, do not prepare for, for the new generation of workers, this will compromise our uh, global stability. 
So let's just talk about this issue of technology because uh, I have a hobby horse about this, which is about driverless cars. So driverless cars is something that has gotten a lot of attention the last 18 mm -hmm. months. There are a series of assumptions that are built into the driverless cars as a thing. Yeah. One is that you need constant access to 5G technology all the time. Think mm -hmm. of it like a cell phone that never loses a signal. Yeah. Second, you need super perfect, super pristine infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Third, you need some kind of a, a le legal setup so that if somebody gets killed by a driverless car, the liability, who gets who gets sued right now, and sadly there are 20,000 people every year that die in auto accidents in the US. Mm -hmm. The manufacturer of an automobile like Ford Motor Company or Volvo is not liable for the death of someone in an auto accident. In yeah. the case of a driverless car, the manufacturer whether it's the special the special optical device that looks or the special radar or the actual manufactured car is going to get blamed or sued and so there's going to have to be some kind of a liability system for that and there's going to have to be some sort of a regulatory instead of rules for all these sorts of issues. I believe that the regulatory and liability issues are going to be really big hurdles just in the United States mm -hmm. to get around because they estimate there'll be several hundred people who die from driverless cars. There's even been even now with these experiments of driverless cars, someone has already died from a driverless car and people kind of freaked out when they were experimenting saying, "Oh shoot, what are we going to do?" Mm -hmm. So I think all of these things having access to constant 5G is yeah. going to be quite difficult in developing countries. Exactly. Having super pristine infrastructure, it's hard enough in the United States. I have a very hard time imagining that India or Nigeria is going to have super pristine infrastructure anytime soon. No. Third, having some kind of reliable liability system for when somebody gets killed in, by a driverless car People in India or Nigeria and they yeah. don't have insurance. I think this is the reason why we don't have flying cars. Mm -hmm. So people in the in the 1950s and 60s talked about in the near future, we're going to have flying cars. Mm. We have the technology to make flying cars. There are regulatory and liability issues and other issues, but are in essence public policy issues that prevent us from having flying cars. I think the same sorts of burdens or barriers are going to be a problem for driverless cars. And I think sometimes the technology evangelists sometimes sort of <laughs> operated in some place where these, these issues don't ma matter. But it seems to me that many of the technologies that make up the fourth industrial revolution have a variety of assumptions built into them, either that formalities yeah. in place, yeah. the rule of laws in place, or some liability systems in place, or 5G's available, or there's electricity, or there's super pristine infrastructure that all this stuff is all going to kind of work. And I'm not sure that's necessarily so. I don't know what your take no, on that is. No, I mean, um, if you've been to Mumbai, you know, you you with the traffic and the and the roads, uh, you know, you you scratch your head. I mean, I think India needs honkless cars. I mean, they're right before instead of driverless cars, <laughs> driverless. you need honkless cars before they need driverless cars. In Nigeria, they're worried about they don't even have tractors there. Um, so the, they're much more focused on can we get some tractors, please, for, for agriculture. agriculture? Yeah, I mean, to increase their productivity. So uh, I think that. You know, a lot of these issues are being discussed in a, in a kind of 
niche and an elitist, uh, you know, in the like the, think tanks. In, no, Talked no, I mean, uh, like in the in very um, formal settings, you know, multinationals that have you know the the means and and the the research capabilities. But you know, if you go to to other places that are, are poor and informal, like these conversations are kind of you know, a little maybe not not realistic. Yeah. You had a series of big picture takeaways that you had. You did all this. You had about seven or eight big takeaways that I thought were particularly interesting, Romina. That I, I was struck with when you presented the. You, you've done. You've been presenting this around town, and I know you'll be. You'll be rolling this out later this month. So. You, you, you interviewed 250 people. You visited a number of countries. You had this task force. You had some big picture takeaways that you thought that, that, that were some of the things you took away from this. Yeah, so we mentioned, you know, that these challenges of informality and employability of youth. Uh, I mentioned that technological disruptions will take time and, um, you know, most governments and education systems are not preparing for the future of work and the issue of, of you know, the challenge of job creation. So... Uh, we we came up with some uh, recommendations for developing countries, and uh, the first one would be to really design a strate- strategy on the future of work and map what are the skills that each sector will will need in the future. Um, so that's a, a very important uh, takeaway. Um, the other one is uh, there's a lot of uh, talk about educating the workforce and higher education. But the the problem is that there are other other avenues for for jobs that are, are not that do not have to be in you know you don't have to be a university degree holder to to get a good job and these are technical and vocational um, education so what's called TVET and there's a lot of stigma attached to to what's the, TVET so this is like vocational technical training yeah these are like um, you know, electricians or carpentry and machine operators. And what I'm trying to say is that young people have other options than go to universities and to, to make a, a good living. And then also youth sometimes don't know how to navigate the job market. They don't know what careers they can choose. They don't know what sectors pay better. They don't know where to start. So we need to provide them with better guidance starting from high school and linking them up with, you know, good job platforms. And the private sector has to be in there in that picture. Oftentimes, education systems they, they're designed to by educators and by private sector actors, so there has to be more interaction with job market needs. And then what we discovered is, as you mentioned, quality infrastructure is still a challenge in, in developing countries. There are huge gaps in, in terms of financing infrastructure. Um, another key takeaway is that we need to modernize our social safety nets and safety protection systems. And finally, startups and entrepreneurship, also avenues where we could... If We're going to need to do it double down on entrepreneurship, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, what, what happens is that good you know, companies, uh, there are a lot of startups, but some of them don't succeed. So they need more financing and or better management, and we need to pay more attention to that startup eco- ecosystem for them to grow and then 
hire people. So, Ramina, one of the things that we've come across in this work is that some people said, well, the future is going to be a whole bunch of robots and we're not going to be working anymore. And what we need is a universal basic income. Mm-hmm. What do you think about a universal basic income? So it's, What's it's UBI? basically, yeah, it's like a minimum guaranteed income for people regardless of whether you're employed or not. Exactly. And to give them sort of a safety net because, you know, a lot of these dystopian, the dystopian view is that the pace of change in technology will be such that we're not going to be able to prepare as fast and to skill ourselves for the new jobs. And so we'll have to, uh, some of us between jobs will need some kind of minimum income to make a living. Now, there has been, I mean, there have been a couple of experiments. There have been experiments and so far they haven't worked out. I mean, there was something in, where was it in like, uh, I think in in Ontario, maybe someplace in Iceland or something like that. Yeah. They ran out of money. I I have like three or four. There were three or four like attempts at this. And And it's been a big budget buster. Or like the head of the ILO, we interviewed the head of the ILO. He wasn't he wasn't big on this in part wasn't because of the money. He thinks it's about that we're disconnected, that work is bigger than just money. That work is about exactly. us connecting to reality and a sense of mission and a sense of meaning in our lives. Yeah, so work is something, you know, we do not just to make money, but it's an activity that gives us self fulfillment. It's an activity for socialization. So for other purposes. So it kind of a UBI devalues a little bit the, the, meaning, the of meaning of work. Of work. So we'll, I think that, you know, we'll have to see. I think it's implementing it. It'll be a bit difficult. And then you, you start with, well, what's the minimum? What, what's the minimum to provide? And so we'll, we'll see. I don't think it's something that um, is going to prosper. But, you know, the jury is still out on that. Okay, so what about, you visited a number of countries. Are any of these countries ready in terms of the sort of the preparing their people for the future in terms of education systems? Are all these countries going to have to radically revamp their education systems? I mean, there are, India is taking a lot of steps. They're, they set up skills councils and their own trade associations are thinking. And so these... These, the private uh, sector a lot, in a lot of these countries is taking the lead, the aren't they? The private sector is taking the, the lead. These industry associations have their skilling initiatives, and a lot of companies, to be frank, are skilling their workforce. Um, so it's not you know that they're just blind or anything or not doing anything about it. So the private sector is taking, I think, the lead, and it's up to and governments are are being receptive, and I think that some of them don't really know or know what to do or how to work with a private sector. But I think the partnership between the private sector is going to be very important. One of the other questions we asked ourselves is we're doing all this work looking at the future of work in developing countries. And one of the questions that we asked ourselves is why should the United States care about whether or not young people have jobs in developing countries? Why should we care about this, Romina? Yeah, so why should they, if you were talking to the Secretary of State of the United States, why should the Secretary of State of the United States or the head of AID care about this issue? So we believe there are three reasons. So one, it affects our national security. That that means that if we don't have an educated and prepared workforce abroad with you know with 
job creation abroad. This will have negative spillovers in the United States in terms of security. There are the, you know, a lot of youth that are idle can be attracted to activities that are not so, you know, I would say <laughs> So young people are going to use their energy in either good ways or bad ways or productive ways exactly. or not so productive and ways. So, How about that? So there's a, the risk of you know, increased terrorism or, or illegal activities that can affect, you know, our shores. Then there is the issue of migration. And, and I'm not just talking about, you know, conflicts and instability and refugees. I'm talking about economic opportunities. A lot of people that don't get opportunities at home migrate to other places. And we need to make sure that this is done in a, in a you know, humane and but also effective way. And to, that to the extent that countries have have $8,000 per capita, which is sort of the magic number. When you hit $8,000 per capita, people are less likely to migrate away from their country to some other country, From as you know. But also, to the extent we have enough, there's enough inclusive growth, that mm -hmm. there's enough job growth in a country that it can absorb a youth bulge, they won't leave either, yeah. right? And the other one is in trade and investment from the United States. We want countries and, and partners that are strong economically so that they can buy our goods and services and, you know, and they can sell their goods and services. So it's also an economic interest of the United States to have people, you know, employed abroad. Right. So if these countries are growing, they will buy our goods and services, which means more jobs and more trade for the United States of America. Yeah, and, you know, more investment opportunities as well. So there's economic reasons, there's national security reasons. And there's migration. And, and reasons of migration. Well, look, this is great. We're very, I know this is going to be a really important contribution. This is the beginning of a long-term look at sort of the changing landscape of developing countries. And I think what I have found to be so gratifying is the appetite and interest in this work. We've really, we've started talking to a number of government stakeholders, philanthropies, and companies, and there's a large appetite for having a sophisticated conversation. And I think the research that you've done is going to be really important to many of the, the conversations we're having here at CSA. So congratulations, Romina. Thanks, Dan. This has been really a pleasure to work on this topic, and thanks for having me here on this podcast.